Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Ivy Blackwell. Ivy is the registered manager at Honeywood House Nursing Home, a charitable concern registered with the Charity Commission and situated outside the village of Rohook, West Sussex. Ivy, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having us as well. I'm representing Honeywood House Nursing Home. So thank you for giving us this platform to speak and our experience in relation to COVID-19. It's an incredible pleasure to hear from you, Ivy. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, has stretched frontline services across the UK and across the world. So how has it been for you? essentially adapting to the challenges that that's brought with it because I can imagine that they've been incredible. It has been very difficult for us as a nursing home, especially as charity nursing home. We're a non-profit, so we have to rely upon ourselves and how we regulate things in relation to as a registered registered nursing home under community care quality commission. But the more challenge is and how to keep everybody safe especially the residents and the staff, and how the staff also respond to the challenges that they are being put into, especially during those few few weeks going into the peak of pandemic, wherein there's not enough government guidelines in place. So that's mm. one of the, the worst worst time that we were we, we have to face during the pandemic crisis. Yeah, there's certainly been a great deal of debate about the government's leadership of the yeah, the pandemic, um, hasn't there? Particularly with how clear yeah. guide, guidelines have been in that sense. So in your case, you feel that the guidelines have not necessarily been clear enough and um, that's caused a few issues. Yes, um, there's not enough clear guidelines on the first few weeks before we were on the peak. It was just, um, to be honest, we have to take it on our own decision and we have to risk assess when we have to lock down the home from visitors because as we were reviewing on the first few government guidelines there is no statement saying that to not to allow visitors to come in but going through the first two days we're in the number of morbidity and mortality rate increased the increment was so high we took it into our own decision that I think we we, we really have to close from visitors and then three days after, it was three days after the government announced that there's no visitors anymore for healthcare like um, nursing homes and hospitals but before that we took it on board that I think we have to close earlier than we were going to be advised of because of the uh, on the news it was all over the place that oh, the, the the death rate is really high already from 30 I think if I'm not mistaken and then it ended up to 100 deaths a day or more. And from a staff perspective as well, it's been an incredibly testing time. They've, of course, worked long hours to deliver the care required under very stringent safety conditions. And what the COVID-19 pandemic has thrust into the limelight is the importance of mental health and well-being across the board for people working on the front line and working remotely. Um, How has it been managing that from a mental health perspective in your experience? Because I can imagine that's been challenging. You've had to have some real conversations with people to provide reassurance at times as well yes as a manager it is very challenging for the reason that some 
well, most of the staff would really ask personal questions like, are we safe? How are we going to go about it if when we didn't have any COVID at patients yet? We were, they were all asking, what we're going to do? Is it going to be immediate infection? How can we deal with this? They, because we didn't have, or everyone didn't have any experience with COVID-19 before. So no one really knows how it feels when you have that experience, when you are going to face that type of experience and to take care of patients who have COVID-19. Nobody knows. So all the staff were actually anxious, especially those who have mental health problems already. So we have to make sure we provide certain support and also personal support to them. Um, And with regards to um, the fact that this has been an incredible learning experience for people as well, and the fact that it's forced a lot of businesses in different sectors to innovate as well, are there positive learning experiences to take from this from your point of view? And do you think it's going to ultimately make staff members and management come out stronger for the experience of managing a crisis as big as this? Yes, of course. I think in every situation, you always come out stronger, especially if it's a type of a learning curve. You learn things and you you become more innovative on how to approach it next time. So what happens is for Honeywood House Nursing Home, we were more proactive and assertive in our decisions, such as learning that obviously agency staff would definitely be one of those factors that could affect in the spread of infection. So from our point of view, from from now on, uh, since pandemic crisis, we haven't used any agency staff. But the challenge apart from that is how are we going to be sustainable in running and operating safely? So that's one of the challenges that we have to face. And also making sure that other than um, putting an infection control in place, our intervention should be sustainable rather than just having a lockdown, not allowing staff to go to go a certain places and how sustainable really is our intervention and how the staff would cope with the interventions in place. So it certainly seems that for all of the challenges that COVID-19 has brought forward, this has been um, a learning experience for you in a managerial role, hasn't it? Yes, it has been really, yes. Because the challenge is, not on how just effective the intervention is, but how sustainable would it be in the long run, considering that this will be with us, COVID-19, and we don't know yet how long it would last or is it going to still be there or how the public can be dealing with a new normal, as they say. And for a lot of care worker staff, of course, they've had to concede the fact that they're having to live within their care homes to reduce the risk of infection like picking it up outside, bringing it into the home. And they're, of course, being separated uh, from their family. So it's almost like being suspended within the COVID-19 storm in some cases. But even so, during that suspension, people are still going to have allocated shifts and they're going to have a little bit of time to sort of switch off and rest. Um, For yourself, how easy is it to just kind of switch off at the end of the day? Um, Or is it a little bit more complicated than that? It's complicated than that, um, provided that, um, I could I would say that Honeywood is very lucky to have all the staff members that we have in place because in comparison to other nursing homes for profit, we have the number of staff that we would say more than enough than the number of residents we're having, which is an advantage. It is a great advantage. So what happened when the COVID-19 was peaked on, on its peak, we were still able to lock down, but 
we were still able to cohort the stuff wherein it's not going to be too much in their part that they're just going to be working all the time. So we're able to cohort and switch them in phases that they're not going to be too much in the strain on their mental health as well. So they're going to be able to go home and switch off and come back again and do what they need and what they their duty of care needs to be doing. That's incredibly positive to hear, of course. And considering that this experience has been an incredible learning curve as well as quite a difficult time, um, if you were to sort of channel all of that experience that you've gained pre-pandemic and during this crisis and maybe give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership or a managerial role within a business in any industry, what sort of advice would you go about giving them? Well, it's kind of, it will be personal, to be honest, and it would be different in different care setting. I couldn't personally give certain advice that I would think would work on them. But in general, I think better communication, that should always be in place mm. with local authorities. Because as a nursing home, you should always have somebody to check and balance the situation with you and contacting Public Health England for advice, which they were very helpful and also Care Quality Commission as a registered provider, we're under them. So it's best to communicate to your allocated inspector, making sure that you declare that if the home is running safe or if there are certain issues that can affect the home from running safe. I think that's the best way forward, making sure everybody's aware. And from the personal experience of Honeywood House, we were also able to get in contact to our local MP, and also, in the end, I was able to send a letter to Matt Hancock uh, through the website they provided and how we, we could uh, raise some concerns in regards to the testings that were given and delivered to us. So I think better communication definitely should improve. And that's the only that's one of the things that I could highlight with. Of course, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we should improve, but I think the best way forward and the first step to consider is communication. And um, finally, Ivy, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, as we sort of move through the pandemic and adjust to the new normal over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, what do you envision happening for yourself and for Honeywood House? And what do you really hope to achieve as a charitable concern in that time? As a charity nursing home and a non-profit organisation, it is very challenging considering our finances are always at stake in running the home safely and also to make sure that we get paid and we give it back to the residents who are, are who are helping the staff also with the pay- payments weekly but the challenge more is with this government support wherein they actually they actually provide a 10% for those of the West Sussex social services and increased payments to help us with infection controls because at the moment we're also having additional help from West Sussex contracts as uh, part of the infection control as well. It's not yet released the funding that was promised, and we, as we have applied it already and declared where we could spend it for the infection control for COVID. So we are envisioning that all these interventions in place would be sustainable, and we're still able to operate safely. And also, we will be able to still have our staff and make sure that they are feeling safe to help us operate in a nursing home. 
let's certainly hope that that proves to be the case um, in future for sure. Um, Ivy, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme this morning and I thank you once again for the time taken to join us on the air. Um, and, you know, given how informative it's been actually hearing your perspective from the uh, the front line today, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on the programme even in future just to discuss exactly how things are getting on at that point in time and see, if anything, what has changed in the months between now and then. Yes, that would be great, I think. And it also helps us to raise our concerns as sometimes we, as a small sector, we're not really given that platform. And nowadays with the social media and everybody's social media stated, I think it's one way or another to show and, and to voice out what really happens in the real life in, with pandemic crisis with COVID-19. Exactly right. Um, thank you ever so much um, again, um, Ivy. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. Because as you well know, we're certainly not out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for having us, Honeywood House Nursing Home. Thank you. That was Ivy Blackwell speaking, the registered manager at Honeywood House Nursing Home. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the chief executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, the trade body for firms who provide such services for both individuals and families. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Liz. And that is coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when of course um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right yes um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since... Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to... Um, 
kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena. And that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post-Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe, Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, th- I think it's 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Lizzie, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's, go- it's, just, it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Um, And financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um the better I think because that then we'll start to promote a culture of of savings and investments which we so badly need in our in 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 our yes. um in our country. Without a doubt it's because and again you've hit the nail on the head because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as um, 
uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, uh, uh, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of... Uh, uh, the system, but ty time will tell, and that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, we, I think you're we, right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at, at a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, left the European Union without, without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more, s far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next 12 months? Um, I think I think that, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know, thirty first of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know, the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter yes. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Euro in Europe, England, or U the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that uh, and of course you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same piece you know <laughs> famous aren't they? indeed I mean, absolutely um, absolutely so we've still got to wait and see i think absolutely um and it will be a uh, interesting year if nothing else 
yeah. uh, now you, you you mentioned there at least uh, the role of uh, of course regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA. Um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially our criticism is that you know we we don't object to having an fscs levy um or you know the lifeboat funds to pay you know recompense to to consumers uh, and and our view is has always been that the polluter pays but the polluters have have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could. <laughs> Um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me! The one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter. Um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected 
and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here. This is already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a a little step back and uh, and look at um. Uh, the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation. Uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we... We I, I must start to wrap up, but um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, we have been lobbying, um, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. That you know they they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just, um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another, of other things, promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental wellbeing uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. 
Um, but it's been <laughs> an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.